Brad, there are two screens in front of you. Okay. Is this a choose your own adventure? Choose your own screen? In the top right quadrant of each image, mm-hmm. there's a faint detail, something you really, really need to see closely, but it's very small. Like a, like an idea. Okay. I'm, so I'm, I'm some kind of uh, counter terrorist type person. I need to read an ID badge. Is that what we're doing? We're, Look, your, your role and your needs are indeterminate is, at this point. It's, this, I haven't thought this through that much. Is, is this, are you just putting me in an episode of 24? I just need you to say enhance. Okay, enhance. Which quadrant, Brad? Oh, no. Um, Upper left quadrant. Perfect. One image gets blocky and pixelated. The other image gets smoother and maintains detail the closer you zoom in. Wait, is that image magic? No. No, it's not magic. Welcome to the FOSPOD. I'm Will. I'm Brad. As always, this week's episode of the FOSPOD is brought to you by Google Open Source. They bring all of the value of open source to Google and all of the resources of Google to open source. You can find out more about Google Open Source at opensource.google. Brad, this week on the FOSPOD, we're talking about Inkscape, the open source alternative to Adobe Illustrator, which is used for creating Vector graphics. Vector graphics. I, I don't I don't know about you, but vector is such a powerful word to me. <laughs> it's funny. I had never used vector graphics, and then I got into cutting stuff with lasers, and it turns out you do a lot of vector graphics when you're cutting stuff with lasers. Yes. And Inkscape, uh, as part of that process, became one of the main tools in my toolbox. It, like, it is an incredibly powerful vector editor. It's open source. I said it was an alternative to Adobe Illustrator, but in so many ways, it's better than Illustrator, depending on what, kind of, what your kind of workflow is. It's a f- absolutely fascinating project. If people don't know the difference between vectors, uh, what, what a vector is, we should probably explain that, though, I realize. Yes. Yes. Vectors versus like raster or bitmap graphics where like on the raster side, the image is stored as just a bunch of pixels, right? It's fixed. Like a grid. It's fixed. Grid of pixels. So yeah. you zoom in on a raster image. I think I've, to me as a layman, the zooming aspect is probably the big differentiator. If you zoom in on a raster image... It's just a big, a bunch of big, ugly pixels because that's all that's there. But the vectors are scalable, right? There's math going on and you can scale vector images up kind of infinitely, I guess, and maintain, maintain quality. Yeah. It's mathematical descriptions of shapes or glyphs or what, whatever you happen to be using. And, uh, the, the reason you use it for CNC and, and laser cutting and, and like vectors you often use in like a cricket vinyl cutter or something like that is because of that scaling, right? There's no lines. The cutter just follows the shape of the curve that's described by math. Inkscape is, I think the premier probably vector program on in the open source world. And it's also interesting because instead of having its own intermediate file format, it just uses the standard, which is SVG. So unlike say your illustrator or your Photoshop or whatever, where there's a Photoshop format file that then exports out to the, to whatever the distribution file is like JPEGs or PNGs with Inkscape, they use SVG as both the source file and the, the export file, which is, which is an interesting choice. We have Martin Owens here today. He's the, an Inkscape developer, and he's a member of the project's leadership committee. Mm-hmm. And we are going to talk about some Inkscape. The community aspect's really interesting, because I think you're the first project we've talked to that's led by a committee. 
as opposed to like having a sole maintainer who's kind of the the cat herder for the project and then right. everybody else. And in most of those cases, that sole maintainer isn't the person who's making the decisions necessarily, but they're kind of they're kind of the hey, we should stop talking about this and start doing this person, it seems like right. in a lot of cases. So and there I'm is I'm some, curious how it works for you. Yeah, all. so there is some some important history which I think goes into the cult culture of Inkscape, which is Inkscape was formed as a fork of Sorry Potty. And it was formed by a committee of people. So the first thing to recognize is that uh, the people who created Inkscape were committed to creating a project of consensus, right? They didn't want a leader. And so they built a, a culture that allowed multiple voices to participate at the same time in decisions. And nobody who created that fork really thought of themselves as more important or more in a leadership position than anybody else. There is a, a second, and I think also important, factor, which is that none of the people that founded Inkscape are, are massively involved anymore. So most of the people who are currently like the most active developers, the most active in the community, are people who have come on afterwards. So they also adopt this same you know, community approach, but they also don't feel like they often can just take control of the whole project and be that kind of single voice. This is good in some respects because it means that we are always open to new contributors. We're always open to voices participating in conversations, but it can also be a, a, a drag because it does take time to engage. It takes energy to participate. Uh, we also have to have very good moderation, codes of conducts and people who are, uh, are basically responsible for unpicking some of the social pro problems that can happen when you try and organize a pro project around multiple in individuals. But I think it is it is genuinely useful. How, how does the structure of the project actually work? Does everyone on the committee have like different areas of expertise where you're kind of the person in charge? Or is it that you come up and present your ideas and, and you decide as a group whether, yeah, this we like this one or we don't like this one or where we think that, that we should modify this or, or, or what? Right. So um, there is a number of different teams within Inkscape and they tend to uh, be the loci for certain types of dis discussions and decision making. So it's even worse than I made it sound originally. There isn't one committee. There are multiples. So a great example of that is the Inkscape Vectors team, which is the outreach team. They're responsible for basically communicating with the outside world, deciding how a website should appear, news articles, tweets, creating competitions so that people can interact with the community who are not programmers. They, you know, they're just normal users. When you asked me to do this podcast, they're the team that I brought this issue to because, oh, actually, no, you actually brought it to the SFC and the SFC brought it to the Vectors team, which was great. And so there was this, this process where they were deciding about like what they wanted to do and how they wanted to approach this interview. And you guys had asked for a developer and that's why they, they brought me in from the developers team. And I put myself forwards as some, some somebody who could be interviewed. And we had a discussion essentially about what kinds of things you would like to talk about and what kinds of things the project would like to highlight. And that just allowed for people's voices to be heard in that discussion. And then whoever goes forwards to actually do the work has a first sense about what the consensus generally is. I love that you said do the work here because it's one of those things that a lot of people I think don't think of as doing the work. Yes. Like doing outreach and doing and talking to people about your project is something that is a ton of work and it oh, takes it a lot of time and energy and yeah, effort and expertise. 
Yeah, so the developer team, which is a developer team, it, it meets by itself. It has discussions about developer topics. We try and reinforce the idea that developers who are doing work on developer-type things should respect and recognize the work that's done in the other teams, right? So they need to be able to recognize vectors for its responsibilities, the things that it decides to do in the project. Likewise for the UX and design team, right? So like trying to practice handing things off and asking good questions of the design team and saying, hey, we want to do this feature or somebody's come along to develop a new thing in Inkscape, we're going to hand this over to the design team and see if they can, um, you know, have input at the right time. So it doesn't happen. Somebody comes in, they develop a feature, and then the design team is like, this is, you know, madness, like it doesn't work. This is all energy, right? This is all extra work to do coordination and also to make sure that uh, the project's culture is such that we can accept the idea that not everybody's going to be expert in everything and not everybody's going to be available to do work on various things. But I think it's it's very important for a project like Inkscape where almost nobody is paid to work on Inkscape. So it's very important that we are we act respectfully to everybody who has the ability to contribute. It's really heartening. This is this is, this is it's like it's like all of the programming best practices from the last 10 or 15 years rolled up into an ethos which is which I love. Martin, are there other ways people can contribute to Inkscape other than writing code? Yeah, so we're, we're currently on the lookout for people that want to focus on documentation, not just textual documentation, but even the librarian-type tasks of taking many, many great YouTube channels, uh, many, many blog posts that are out there in the wild and deciding to collect them together into a formalized piece. We also know that there are written books uh, that you can buy. You know, so it's 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 a matter of deciding if you want to contribute. This could be a good way of doing it. Honestly, it sounds kind of the most consistent with the open source philosophy in general, right? Being a you know fully distributed, volunteer driven. What you're describing sounds like it's almost modeled after the way open source works in general. Versus, you know, there there are a lot of more top down projects. You know, more more unilateral decision making yeah. out there. And this is by far the most distributed version of that, I think, that we've encountered on this show so far. Yeah, I think because of the way Inkscape was created, it has been something that we've worked hard to keep, you know, because there are the, the patterns that you see in the ideal, like in ideal, you would have a multi-stakeholder open source project with voices and, you know, and meetings and committees and so, so on. But the actual practice of how that works is something that you can only really experience. It's difficult to document like where all of the trials are uh, when it comes to distributing voices so that a wider scope of individuals get to be invited to participate in a project, which I think is basically the, the crux of the matter is that, this is me speak, speaking personally, I think a lot of open source projects find it difficult to create the invitations that allow different types of people to participate. Yeah, I think that's something we've heard from a lot of the maintainers we've talked to on this show is that a lot of times features are initiated by somebody who just shows up wanting that feature, right? And they start developing it. Right. And only once they've made it, do they then, you know, request that it be merged into the project and then the maintainer decides if it is or not. But there's not some steering committee that says, hey, we should do X, Y, and Z on the roadmap. 
Like it's just very organically driven by yeah, and in fact, people, people who want the work done. So it, it sounds like you've, you've got a little bit of a different approach. People do come to us and they actually ask us, oh, where, where is Inkscape's roadmap? And we have to say to them, uh, there isn't one. And we can't, we can't say that there is one because of this exact re- reason, is that there are so many chaotic things that can happen. The project has certain specific uh, directions where we could call a very strong consensus about the direction it needs to move in. For example, Inkscape moved from GTK2 to GTK3, very strong consensus, needs to move from GTK3 to GTK4, very strong consensus. Those projects are going to be pushed. Uh, there are also projects that uh, merit funding simply because the consensus is so strong that I, I don't think there is a, a reason not to properly resource them. What about like um, kind of pipeline changes? So what if you if you want to change like your, what's your kind of de- I don't, development hierarchy? You, you know, or do you, I'm assuming you're not doing like agile or sprints or something like that, but is it just kind of, hey, here's the list of tasks to do and somebody grabs them off with a pile and goes and runs with it? Yeah, so there's, it's definitely not, as structured as that. Each developer is actually working in their own pattern, should we say, simply because each developer is resourced in a different way. I am resourced by my uh, sponsors directly from users, and other developers are not, right? Other developers are either doing it as a hobby because they find it fun, or they are doing it because they are doing it as a part of their work or are part of their studies because they're students. And so each of these models is producing different patterns in the merge requests and how they uh, interact with things like the developer meetings. So a, a good example of that is that Google Summer of Code student might come along. There's a set list of projects that they could do, things that the project would like, and then they will work on it. And the, the mentor will help them, and then they might succeed at getting it merged. But there are no guarantees. Sometimes a failed Google Summer of Code will be taken up by somebody else. They'll take their, their branch and they'll, they'll finish the work and they'll try to get it merged. Sometimes there'll be just extra help after that and the student will actually work beyond the scope of the uh, Google Summer of Code project in order to get it complete, which you know turns them from being a student into being a hobbyist, uh, you know, basically. So we have to be agile, but not in the way you mean about how we approach merge requests and the reason why a person is contributing. Most of the time, almost all ideas for merge requests are accepted. There are very few instances where the project has denied a merge request that was technically competent because most of the time we're just happy to have contributions that move the project forwards. You, You all are hosted on GitLab rather than GitHub. Yes. And I was curious, like, th- that's a philosophical choice, I, yes. I think, probably guessing by, by, the, by this point. But, like, when that decision was made, is that something that everybody on the project would talk about? Or is that if, if you decide, if somebody said, hey, we should move to GitHub? I see what you're saying now, yes. As a hypothetical, like, how, what would the process for that conversation be? And who would be involved, I guess? So the transition from uh, Launchpad, which we were on, to GitLab involved in numerous discussions. Because, first of all, we had to decide to use Git rather than Bazaar. And that decision was actually very easy simply because it's it's one of these very strong consensuses. Very few people dissented. The move to GitLab was more of a conversation because people had to investigate what GitLab was offering. They had to investigate what GitHub was offering. We had to investigate what we were losing by 
moving from from Launchpad. Um, a good example of that is translations. Uh, Launchpad's translations services are better than anything else. And unfortunately, that's one of the features that we lost. All of those had to be brought in and discussed amongst the entire developer team. And it was the developer team, not the whole project, that made that decision. The people who advocated for GitLab because they felt that GitHub was more of a risk in terms of the philosophical free software underpinnings, won out that particular argument. The counter argument, which was that Inkscape would be more accessible if it was on GitHub, lost. But it wasn't a heated debate. It wasn't argumentative. It was a constructive debate based upon the valuation of the different features available. And do you have these conversations on like mailing lists or message boards or chat or all of the above? So that decision was made over mailing list, but over the past few years, uh, the um, mailing lists have wound down as people have participated less on mailing lists. Now, predominantly discussions happen on Rocket Chat, which we have our own instance of, and they happen on big big blue button meetings. So we have video calls every eight days, the developer team, okay, uh, where we are face-to-face talking about the projects that we're working on, the questions that we might have discussing some of these exact things about what we might want to do policy-wise. One of the really neat things about this approach is it leaves a lot of room for people who aren't necessarily programmers or software designers to come in and contribute to the project, it sounds like. Absolutely, yeah. I'm adamant that people who are moderators on the Inkscape for Forum are contributors to the project. People who are helping, like the, the active and persistent helpers in the in the rocket chat to users that come in with problems, problems, they're contributing to the project, right? If if we have a t-shirt thing that we do sometimes where we give contributors t-shirts, they, they are very well, welcome to apply as equal mem- members of a, of a pro- project. Yeah, it's not just about lines of code committed, right? Yeah, and speaking as a programmer, my work is immensely more valuable because of the assistance that I get from the testing team, the, the user experience team, and also other developers, right? So like having those supports and good relationships with the peoples in those teams has dramatically made my work more efficient. You've got a pretty extensive background working in open source in general. Have you worked on projects that have more of a top-down management structure and more kind of decision-making embodied in a single maintainer, a single a single leader? And, and, and if so, like what were the ups and downs of that moving and moving to this more consensus-based model? I have. I used to work somewhat on uh, Ubuntu, and I've contributed to some projects, but I'm probably not, I would say, experienced with a lot of other large projects. I'm personally more of a chaotic, good type person, so I tend not to work well with the top-down approach. But I, I think I've concluded myself that a top-down approach only works if there are resources that are flowing in that same direction, right? So if the if your benevolent dictator is benevolent enough to pay you for your for your time, then fair enough, they can tell you what to do and how to do it. But as soon as a dictator starts dictating how things should be done to a volunteer, things start getting very sketchy. So I appreciate some of the should we say like top leaders of projects. Python is a great example. Were they operate a style of leadership that allows them to be theoretically at the top, but not actually a dictator. 
right? They are there to facilitate specific kinds of problems that happen in the project that can be helped by having somebody who is the last to decide. It seems like the people who are, who are the last deciders, the large successful projects that have a single person at the top seem to often fit that kind of, hey, I'm the last decider, not, hey, here's what we should be doing. Exactly. They're not the people that decides what work is going to happen. They're the people who basically unpick the knotty problems that can happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, That's a good way to put it. You've mentioned, you know, compensation in a, in a top-down model like that and also sponsorship that you rely on. Could you uh, tell us a little bit more about what your sponsorship model is like? That's one of the things we're, we're really interested in on the show is how open source developers working on something that is inherently not intended to generate profits actually get by and, and sustain right. themselves. Yeah, so there's, there's two sides of a particular kind of problem that we have in the free and open source world, which is we lack resources to do the work that's necessary for the public good. And at the same time, I don't believe that users really have the freedoms that they're guaranteed, right? And partially that's because if you're not a pro programmer, you don't have the skills yourself, you're denied from being able to change the code, right? So you're denied the effective ability to change the programs that you use every day to be the way that you want them to be. And so what I have decided to do, this is because Inkscape is very chaotic in how it operates, each developer is personally responsible for deciding like how they want to organize themselves. I organize myself around Patreon, which is a way of collectivizing small amounts of money from individual users. And then I communicate to them what work I'm doing. And it provides them a mechanism to talk to me and have a conversation with me about the problems that they're having with the soft software. And it forces me as a developer to think very carefully if I am serving the needs of the people who are trying to enable me to, to, to do work, right? So it's not just about doing the public good, right? Volunteers are very important to doing the public good, but I also want to be available to do the private good, right? The things that people are asking for, right? And they are, they are essentially trying to make them be a decider of what needs to happen. Not all people in Inkscape work like that. Other developers decide themselves about what's important. Some of them decide based upon listening to people online. But my personal feelings is that the money makes it makes it a binding social contract. Does Inkscape run any kind of like a idea board or feature request board or something like that where people can submit things and vote on features they like and, and are excited about so you can kind of take the temperature of the room? Yeah, I mean, the... the Best, I would say, example of that is the, the design team. The design team iterates over many ideas and it uses GitLab. And so people can come in and they can both comment on design ideas and they can just thumbs up if that's all, all they want to do. There is unfortunately not an infinite amount of resources to dedicate. So we do have users who are passionate about the changes they want to see, but there's not enough developers to produce the result that they want. And unfortunately, that's just the kind of economic situation that we're, we're in. I'd love to have a, like 100 developers working on Inkscape, like pounding away at things that are very important, but like will take a long time. How do you handle corporate contributions in this in this kind of framework? Like a lot of places, you know, not to pick on Home Assistant, but when we talked to Paulus about Home Assistant a few months ago, one of the places he said is that like they're big enough now that the people who make some of the smart home software hardware actually want to write the the plugins for Home Assistant because yes. being supported by Home Assistant is important to their to their project. 
And I, I'm curious, like how you manage that kind of that energy. <laughs> oh yeah. So theoretically a programmer who is working on behalf of a company as this, let's say they're an employee. It has the exact same standing as any other developer who comes in to contribute, which means that they're building up their reputation internally. They're showing that they can commit work uh, to a professional degree and that they can interact with the rest of the project appropriately. No special measures are put in place if you if you declare that you're working for a particular company, because if you start doing things that are bad actor, bad faith type things, or you start trying to take control of situations, the consensus-based model very quickly flags those things up because pe- people will just say, I don't like that. That is in- inappropriate. We need to make a decision about this. And that breaks a lot of that, you know, direct, so like in- a direct injection attack from, from a company that wanted to do yeah. a specific thing. We would recommend people spark Inkscape if they wanted to do something that the project itself wasn't willing to commit to. Okay. Um, that's healthy, I think. Well, and, and you also have a pretty robust plugin architecture too, right? Which which gives them opportunities to extend without necessarily going as far as forking or, or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Like there have been a couple of forks uh, of Inkscape which have been very interesting to see. One of which was Ponyscape, which was a My Little Pony focused version of Inkscape. <laughs> But the, <laughs> the the Python extensions allow a lot of that energy for like cutting machine manufacturers or um, you know not not artists. I tend not to see very many artists uh, or scientists to really do some of that in, in interesting work. I will say that I have seen Inkscape used in embedded devices, and because of its li- license, we we never hear from those companies. Right, they are developing with Inkscape. They're using our code. They don't contribute back because they don't have to. And so it's very interesting when you hear that like, oh, they, as long as they're not asking us for help, I guess it's like, at least they're not draining our resources, but it would be nice if they cooperated a bit more. Checked back up occasionally, right? Well, it's good. It would be healthy for them. Like they're they're fools to themselves to not dive in and, 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 and distribute some of the liability. Okay. So you mentioned the plugins for hardware. Like the place I became aware of Inkscape was when I got a laser cutter and I suddenly had a need to be able to manipulate vectors and I didn't want to pay for Illustrator, frankly. Mm-hmm. And, and I was really immediately surprised by how far Inkscape goes to support what is, I assume, a pretty small community with tools that seemed really tuned for for that for those particular uses: laser cutter, Cricut, you know, vinyl cutters, that kind of thing. And I'm curious how you manage the highly specialized audiences that have found Inkscape over the years. Yeah, I, I would say that, yes, the hardware-type problems Inkscape is good at be, simply because there are very few other options that are accessible. It helps that SVG is our standard, standard format. It makes it more uh, useful if somebody was to learn how to write a pl- plugin for Inkscape. You can take almost any of the Inkscape uh, extensions and you can run them without Inkscape installed, right? They work without Inkscape simply because they're Python, they open up SVG on the stand, stand, standard in, they parse it themselves, they like understand how SVG works. So you have a lot of latitude to both uh, your development work, workflow for a particular extension and also for taking the code and doing something else with it if you wanted to. Inkscape's ge- generally for putting things into core, like into shipping ex- extensions, used to be a bit more 
open. Now we've become a little bit more restrictive since we moved from Python 2 to Python 3. We, we now require you to at least write a test and type for your code to pass a uh, standard PyLint. So there are some, some rules now, but uh, I'd still be open to shipping more extensions uh, so long as they're not, they won't degrade the, the user experience. One of the things that we've done is we've opened up an extensions repository on our website that allows people to publish their extensions and they should be able to install them from the extensions manager. This is a more recent development, but it's all about that opening up and making sure that the work that people do for these niches isn't lost or replicated. Like we don't want people doing work over and over again. The interesting thing to me about the CNC thing is that as over the last 10 years, the rise of home CNC devices and, and maybe not home, but low cost CNC devices like the vinyl cutters and the and the laser cutters and things like that has really exploded. And there's there what you said is true. You have on one hand Illustrator, which is kind of terrible for that sort of use. And then you have stuff like Fusion 360, which is massive overkill for somebody who wants to cut out an outline of a, of a shape stick on their kid's or, wall. Or FreeCAD. FreeCAD yeah, is free a great CAD. tool, but yeah. you know, it's complicated. But but yeah, free FreeCAD also it fits in that kind of massive overkill territory in my in my head, and it's a niche that you all have really occupied. When I look at when I go to the message boards where people do that kind of work, everybody's like, "Hey, if, if you haven't tried Inkscape, you should really try that." What, what regardless of what software you have access to, it's really good for people who want to turn vectors into into cut objects. So, it's I think a growing niche. I hope one of the things I would I would actually advise anybody who's listening is that. It, there are certain devices that only work when, when they're online. They only work by buying tokens from the company to send a file to your device. Avoid, avoid very strongly any device that does not allow you to put a, a file of any format, whether it's SVG or DXF or whatever, directly into your device. We've said the word Illustrator enough at this point that I, I feel like I just I want to ask. I mean, Inkscape is coming up on... 20 years old at this point. I'm, I'm curious, like, where, where do you see the project fitting into the kind of larger ecosystem of digital creatives for graphics? You know, the, the traditional use case for Inkscape being, you know, manipulation of vector graphics and, and publishing and that sort of thing. Do you, do you feel like the, the project's contributors see it as an alternative to Illustrator, a competitor to Illustrator? Does it occupy a different niche in your mind? I'm, I'm curious kind of where you see the project after almost two decades. Yeah, I mean, Inkscape occupies a very interesting, I would say, set of niches. You can divide our user base by whether they're doing artistry, design, science, cutting CNC type stuff, or, 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 or ponies. And so the communities, they actually, they sometimes overlap, but not very frequently. So they all have particular drives that drive them, right? We very rarely hear from CNC cutting people about Inkscape's lack of CNYK support, but it's very important to designers. So, you know, trying to get these communities involved is part of the community project management task, because really it's not about me deciding what Inkscape needs to be. It's really about inviting users who are disaffected, not being served well, don't have access to Illustrator because they use, maybe they use a Linux machine, right? These people also need access to good tools. And so bringing them in, I think allows them to make decisions about where they want the project to go. I personally would like Inkscape to just be uh, a healthy free software project that enables 
many of the things that proprietary users take for granted and that we don't lose capacity in the free software world to perform certain, certain kinds of actions. Um, and I think Inkscape fills vital roles for people that want to make stickers, for example. Um, but having said that, like we, we would be getting very close into roadmap territory if we we'd started deciding what Inkscape should be. That deciding what it should be is really interesting because like some some tools, Bl Blender is a good example of this, I think, as, you know, started out as a 3D modeling program. And because the open source world doesn't have the same kind of infrastructure, you know, for everything from color grading to post-processing effects and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Like they've, they've built a video editor into Blender at this point, right? It's, and it's, a, yes, it's quite a good video editor. And I'm, I'm curious, like, what is it the focus of the committees that keeps you kind of honed in on vector stuff and ignore, I don't want to say ignoring, but kind of, you know, leaving the world of raster to other projects. To some degree, there is a, a direction of travel, right? The momentum of the project has nailed very closely to Vector simply because SVG is not a format that we export to. It is Inkscape's internal memory, right? The way in which it deals with problems has to fit inside of SVG or we can't really do it. So in a lot of ways, some decisions are made based upon technology, some decisions are made because of the upstream technologies that we're using. And therefore, we would, in order to fix those particular problems, we'd have to contribute to upstreams in a profound way. And so those usually slow down movement in, the, in those directions. But yeah, I think it's important that we allow our own opinions about what Inkscape could be to just be informative to the people who actually should be driving the discussion, which is users. You know, they, they need to be brought in simply because we, a lot of the times a, a developer will actually be quite happy with a result, which is not actually that useful to a wider audience. I think that's universal in, in software development. Do you ever worry that the commitment to SVG as the, as the internal standard, as the, you called it the memory, I think, of Inkscape, do you ever worry that that limits the long-term potential? You know, would it if you had an inter intermediate format that then exported SVG, it seems like you'd be able to extend and maybe move faster than the SVG standard moves at. It's possible. I will say that it's my personal opinion that the SVG standard has stalled. I do not rate the W3C very highly for their stewardship of the SVG format. I think that they have been fairly, let's say, disrespectful to editors of SVG and focused far too highly on what's important to web browsers. Uh, we really needed the, the, the W3C to be a good partner for document format SVG, but they haven't. And partially this is resources again uh, about what com companies are involved and how much time they can spend on pro problems and how decisions are made. But that doesn't necessarily stop us because it is XML, you can extend it. We have feet features in Inkscape, things like guides and grids and many other things that are not in the SVG spec. We try and make those things akin to other things that are in the SVG spec. So they're not a surprise for anybody that wants to open an SVG, an Inkscape SVG and interpret them, but they are uh, separate namespaces that can be stripped out how involved is Inkscape in the development of SVG with the W3C? 
We have a W3C member and we have funded travel and participation in the W3C process for many, many years. I apologize if you are sick to death of hearing the term CMYK, but um, is this, do you have any any comment? I mean, that's you know, if, if you if you look up Inkscape with regard to printing designs, that's something you'll see quite a bit. Yeah. Is that it, since it, since it lacks CMYK support, and that's very critical in the print world, that that there's kind of a disconnect there with that particular use case. And I know you can't just say it's in the roadmap because there is no roadmap and it's very community driven. But any any thoughts on that situation, just in general? So I should be clear, Inkscape doesn't have a roadmap. But I do. And CMYK <laughs> sure. is on my roadmap. Oh, interesting. Okay. So uh, my current work that I've been doing is all about PDF. Currently dealing with problems with opening PDF files, but I've been starting to do all of the background research for saving PDFs. The predominant problems with CMYK is not Inkscape support for CMYK because we can support CMYK already today. The problem is, is that people need PDFs, right? Because... Va- there's a vanishingly small number of anybody who can support color pro- profiles in SVG files. It may also be zero or one Inkscape. But so so the, the real issue is trying to make sure that the color pro- profile and color management that's already in, in Inkscape can be reflected in the PDFs that we produce. We have backed ourselves into a corner, a technological dead end in the way in which we produce PDFs which is we currently use a library called Cairo, which is a, a graphics front end that many free software projects use to display things to the screen. Cairo is committed to red, green, blue. It doesn't need CMYK, even though it can write PDF files. We use Cairo for both drawing to the screen and also to produce PDF. This creates massive problems when it comes to uh, speeding up Inkscape because Cairo is entirely CPU-based and it also hobbles our PDF output, right? We not only can't do CMYK, there's a whole bunch of other PDF type features which we can't really do because Cairo paints everything that we send to it into primitives and those primitives get essentially reconstructed in PDF. What we need to do, and this is what's on my roadmap, is we need to do exactly what Scribus or Scribus has done, which is to write their own PDF implementation. Although my intention is to just take their code, but we'll see how well that works. They're, they're a cute project, so there's a lot of trans- translation there, but they are C++, so it's not an impossible task. That's the that's the, the beauty of open source, right? Share and share alike. <laughs> yes. I'm curious, like, it's funny, color is always a problem, and it's one of those things I think people don't really appreciate the complexity of you know, switching that button on your screen from RGB to CMYK, right? <laughs> yes. But I, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about the, if you're familiar with the Pantone kerfuffle that Adobe users are going through right now, because Pantone has decided yeah. they want to charge everybody licensing for access to their, to their palettes. And it's like, it's a weirdly, it's very contentious because it's something that I think previously Adobe shouldered the burden on. And as a project like Inkscape, you all don't, you you do you just don't pay for that kind of stuff because obviously you know the the money's not there for that kind of licensing. Yeah, I mean it would it's, it's it will surprise you to know that uh, Pantone is unpalatable to Inkscape, right? Its licensing conditions are entirely incompatible with how we distribute Inkscape and what we do with it. If Pantone wanted to create an Inkscape palette file and sell it, they're very welcome to. But Inkscape isn't going to support them 
doing that, right? We're not going to advertise us on a website for nothing. Hey, come and pay Pantone for this palette file. Because to us, the very proprietary na- nature, that the idea that you can uh, restrict access to colored definitions is insane. Like it, it makes no sense. Now I understand that they need to recoup the investment for doing all of the work for mixing inks and paints and you know doing all of the very important color testing work. But at the same time, the way in which you recoup that cost says a lot about what you think the, the business potential is and what you think the work is. To my mind, color this kind of color work would be scientific, not a corporate. Or recoup it in the cost of the ink that you're buying rather than in the art that creates the files that go into the, right? Like there's there's a bazillion different ways to monetize that and monetizing Lots. the artist seems. Lots. I mean, they, they, they could actually sell, I mean, like, like in the open source world where they can sell hardware, they can sell like literal paints or they could, you know, I don't know, get a government grant. Like there's, there's just loads of ways of, of, of solving particular problems. Like like if if, an, if the entire printing industry came together and just created a non-profit organization to just be scientists that mixed ink, they would have solved this problem without any proprietary nonsense. But the fact that they had a company come in and occupy that space has created serious issues for them, I think. Back to the kind of interoperability of, of the graphics design workflow, Martin, how much thought goes into how well Inkscape works with other open source software in that space? You know, have you talked about building pipelines into raster raster tools or, or other things like that before? Yeah, there's been there's been some some discussions about how to essentially allow other projects to participate. For a good example is one of the ways in which we export CMYK in Inkscape is literally by using Scribus. With all the restrictions that Scribus will have on, on your SVG file, it's better than nothing. But that's not really with consent, right? It's not co- a cooperative meet-in-the-middle type scenario. It's just as you using a tool. It's actually difficult to cross a lot of project ba- boundaries sometimes. We meet at the Libre Graphics meetup where people from GIMP and Inkscape and Scribus and uh, dark t- table, et cetera, et cetera, will tend to send people and we'll we'll talk about these some of these issues. But there are there are significant barriers, I think, between different projects. And that's unfortunate because I think there's a lot of cross-pollination that we could be doing, uh, especially to make it easier for our users. And hopefully we can push more in that direction as our internal project structure becomes more stable and more assured we'll be able to have resources to be reaching out to other projects and and formalize what I think has been a a large request is that to have a creative suite of free software tools that all are themed in the same way and all work together and, you know, can be installed in one giant package. Do you think that the users actually want that creative suite analog or do you think they just want to be able to say, hey, here's a button that's going to send this vector to GIMP so that I can integrate it with my multi-layered raster image? I think that there are people who are professionals who, in their professional role, accept the the need to install whatever tool is going to do the job. I also think that there is a desire, and I think it's a, a uniquely human thing, of making a collection that is complete, where all of the little holes are filled with a little thing. And it's it's no surprise to me that there is a there is a strong 
So say a warm and fuzzy feeling from being able to install a single thing that uh, purports to be an entire tool- toolbox full of all, you know, different things that whatever you could possibly widgetize for whatever work might come your way in the future. And know that the people who have worked on one tool theoretically have worked on this other tool and so therefore it will share some of that uh, user experience, should we say. Speaking of toolboxes, one of the things we like to ask people is what their toolbox pipeline looks like. So what what are the tools that you use uh, on the day-to-day, Martin? I use VI and I use Pop! OS. The project has some some tools that it uses for compiling. So we use Ninja, Ccache. You know, we obviously use Python. Uh, there are, we use GDB, but I wouldn't say that there's anything beyond that. And then the GitLab stuff for like bug tracking and feature requests and all that. Man, Git is such a, a, a neutral base. Like everything is based on it, right? Yeah. Preferred uh, desktop environment? Currently using Pop! OS. I used to use Ubuntu. I have decided that I, I like Pop! OS more. I know you don't do roadmaps, but what's next for Inkscape? Sure, yeah. So we're going to have a point release, uh, 1.2.2, uh, December 5th, probably, which should fix some issues with the with with the release. So please do look out for that. We're going to have 1.3 released uh, next April. We're, we're doing a yearly cadence, which we think has been healthy for us because it sets a uh, seasonality to the development cycle. You know, we are, I think, going to continue internally inside of the project and the non-profit, trying to fund more development, try to get people's donations to use. Uh, We have historically been very bad at exercising donations, you know, because we rely upon volunteers considerably and we are consensus-based. It does make it a lot harder to make calls on who should get resources for, for what things. So we're trying to be better at that. If you want to support Inkscape, there are many ways to do that. You don't have to give the project uh, your money. You don't have to give me personally your money. You can get involved with, with time, documentation, helping somebody else. These are all contributions to the project. And I fully respect anybody that like even just helps a friend learn how to use Inkscape is, to my mind, a contribution. Um, Martin, thank you so, so much. Where can people find you? Personally, I, I can be found on, uh, let's see, what's the best URL? Oh, it's you, you people usually use Twitter, but for some reason, it's a little <laughs> bit up and down these days. I don't know. Perhaps perhaps alternate social media platforms or, or, or your sponsorship details as well, especially. Yeah, so so like, you know what? Probably the best thing to do is to go onto YouTube and search for Martin Owens Inkscape. You'll find my videos. They're a good reflection of the work that I do. You can also uh, join Inkscape's Rocket Chat, chat.inkscape.org, or the forums at inkscape.org forward slash forums, and uh, I'll be there so you can communicate with me there. And you can also jo- join in the fun because there's, there's a lot of people who want to talk about in- Inkscape there. And what about the project? People can find it at inkscape.org? Yes, yeah, so it's the pro- projects at inkscape.org. Uh, downloads are available. There are no restrictions. Nobody will ask for you to log in. Please, as the website administrator, don't make a user account in order to download Inkscape. The database doesn't need your details. <laughs> it's, it's a, that is, I think it's the first time I've ever heard somebody say, hey, don't make an account to download our software. That's lovely. <laughs> it's 
it's just more, more, more work, man. I don't want, I don't want millions of rows in a database for people who just want, wanted to download it. That was a fascinating conversation. Yes, I, I didn't expect to get so much into the kind of steering committee aspect of this project. When we signed up this episode, kind of thought we'd just be talking vectors and stuff. But hearing, like hearing the like really fully communal approach they have to running this project and, and making decisions and, and contributions and all that stuff was just fascinating. And the thing that struck me is that a lot of open source projects are about people who write code and then everyone else. And the value that the Inkscape folks put on the work of everyone, the designers and the contributors and the testers and even the forum moderators and the and the you know the people who do community t-shirts and stuff like that. It was a really cool conversation. Yeah, that, I, that reminded me of the, the ongoing discussion in game development where we spend a lot of our time about there is some kind of elitist stratification in game development where like QA testers, for example, are not looked at as developers or X, Y, and Z. You know, like there's there is that's an ongoing conversation, I think, in a lot of uh, a lot of domains, and it was nice to hear in this in this context. Like, hey, everybody, who, <laughs> it sounds so simple when you say it out loud. Everybody who contributes is a contributor, right? Yeah, like you know, the HR people who make sure that there are paychecks and everybody has health insurance and all your benefits are taken care of. Those people count too. Everybody counts. It all works. Every, without everybody working together, we can't make stuff as a as a society. So. I really respect that a lot and, and really appreciate Martin coming down to talk to us about Inkscape. Yeah. As always, this week's FossPod is brought to you by Google Open Source. They bring all of the value of open source to Google and all of the resources of Google to open source. Matt Purdy produced this episode and Sabrina Hill edited it. As always, I'm Will. I am Brett. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode of the FossPod. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.